Welcome, Pudding People, to another episode of Everybody Loves Pudding. I am your host, Ken Seymour, with your other host, Richard Geiger. Good afternoon. I am the other host. We are ecstatic to have you with us today. We have a guest host with us, or a guest star, or just a guest, depending upon how uh, laconic you are wanting to be at the given moment. Her name is uh, Jessica Manner. She is one of the hosts of the Body Count Podcasts. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you guys so much for having me. I have to say that's such a professional intro. You're already like leaps and bounds ahead of me on podcasting anything because when we come sloppy drunk, you know, it's whatever comes out of my mouth that day is (laughs) what we're going to go with. So I'm very excited to be here. Well, we, we appreciate any and all flattery, so I'll, I'll take that. Uh, <laughs> I feel the same way. I understand. So what I would really like to start with, um, there's some cross-section probably between our podcasts in certain areas, but I would love to get out of your own words kind of what's the core of your podcast and what you're trying to bring to everybody. Well, I'm an historian, and um, I always found – I always found academia to be incredibly stuffy and full of, can I, can I cuss on this podcast? I'm sorry. I didn't ask. I I think that would be fine. Worst case scenario, I can put Richard to work and bleep in entertaining ways. Okay. Well, good. I would love to hear myself arrested development bleeped like out 110%. Um, I, I think that academia is full of pretentious dicks for the most part. And I always, used to sit in classes, especially, and I teach, or I used to teach my own classes, the way that I teach on my podcast, and that it's very relatable, it's a narrative history, I cuss, I drink, I say stupid stuff, I like stupid comparisons, but I think that that is how you reach an audience that desperately needs to know, understand, comprehend history, so that they can connect to the headlines that they read. For example, recently we have done what ended up being a 15-part exploration of Russian history. Oh, kill me now. I've Y'all, I have such a vodka dependence after that. It's <laughs> stupid. It really is stupid. My entire like need to drink with that. Um, but we try to connect and how that correlates. So you may have from 2014 on read about Vladimir Putin and Russia's presence in the Ukraine, but that is not a new concept, nor is it a new construct. So we try to approach that from the very beginning in the time of troubles in Russian history, and that's going to precede the Romanovs. And it was an early Romanov exploration because you'll find that the Kremlin has not changed that much from 1593 to now. And Vladimir Putin doesn't do anything that's not literally put in a binder playbook of Russian history. He flips to the tab, you know, like, oh, a peasant uprising. And he follows down, you know, the annex that he's got (laughs) from his own Russian history. And I find that interesting. And I think a lot of people struggle to meet in between on those things. And so the way we present history is, like I said, narrative. It's very simple. It's something anybody can follow because I feel like a lot of people get really, really lost in history classes when they're just hearing names 
and dates or references or having to look at a map. They don't, people, most people don't follow something that way, nor do they care what they can follow and what they will remember is a story. So what I end up doing is telling a story most of the time, just to my co-host, um, which has been my best friend since the first year of college, who is a dance major, completely artistic, has no right brain skills, whether left brain skills whatsoever, like none she's devoid of. But I always kind of use her as the litmus test on how well we're doing in teaching history, because if she can look at a headline and go, oh, that's not new news to me, you know, I know that we're doing well. So essentially it is history class, but no way you've ever heard history class before. And um, that's kind of how we try to approach it. And I will say I'm horrible. I swear like a sailor. I have a consummate drinking problem on that podcast. You know, it is what it is. But that's kind of what we try to bring to it, what we kind of try to do. And I promise I do not sound this smart for one second of that podcast. (laughs) Not one. That's not what we're about. We're not about trying to be dicks or trying to be smarter or trying to be academic. It's about telling a story. That is definitely what people tend to connect with better. But one thing that I've noticed is um, that language is is huge in terms of any sort of communication, especially when you're trying to uh, permanently convey information to somebody. So having, having a more, I don't know if normal is the right term, but more approachable maybe, uh, uh, way of presenting things, I think, seems like it would make a lot more sense. I mean, I know Richard, he's constantly cussing up a storm. I Just terrible. I am definitely a, uh, an R-rated person that's not on this podcast. When not on this podcast. <laughs> so Friends can attest to that. The thing that popped to my mind, you, you kind of put it in reference um, to your teaching and I'm sure probably your taking of classes earlier that you were um, probably in several situations where the professor was maybe just not able to connect in the right way. I have to believe that you might have a story, possibly even two, where uh, a, a professor might have... Um, dramatically failed in attempting to present some information to you that but you still managed to get past it? Oh, I have so many. Um, and then I have a lot of success stories as well. I um, Russian history is something that I'm very familiar with that I do very well and I sort of specialize in, uh, kind of, sort of. Um, more 20th century Russian than than what I necessarily am representing on the podcast, but I feel like if you're going to understand that you have to go back. And um, I remember sitting in class, I think it was the first day of like 1301, like a, a very basic 1401 type elective Russian history class. And um, the guy that taught it was such a pretentious, <laughs> pretentious twat, like the worst kind of academic And I remember him going off on all these things you should read and all these really heavy sort of literary references that at the time I knew, but as I was looking around, I know 
that knew, nobody else in the class knew or connected with. And, and it was just this look of horror, like so many people dropped the class after that. And I'm just going, dude, you could have sat there and you could have just been like the time of troubles and started with, you know, like the sixth time we burned Moscow down after soaking corpses and vodka. I mean, that's the most metalist, sorry, the metal AF thing I've ever heard in my life. Like it just stop right there, sir. You've got, that's the hook. You mm. got us. Yep. Um, but to approach it with all these, literary heavy references and all this ridiculousness he turned so many people in that class off and i was like what a dick like nobody wants to sit and listen to this shit i don't even want to sit and listen to this shit and you know half of history majors are not planning to be academics half of them are planning to be like high school coaches so it's even more of a disconnect that you're seeing or they're planning to be educators at a high school or less level and this is something they have to take in as elective or as an elective and i'm just going you lost half the class i can see the shutters going down and that was something that always really stuck with me as far as that was concerned it's just how disconnected people are because academia kind of refused to, to evolve and to teach in a modern era i don't know why we're surprised by that i mean for god's sakes like the education system's a mess, but I'm not going to get political. I promise. <laughs> um, and then another, another such situation was in a, an early uh, native American history class. I'm going to call it native American because white people are less offended by that. <laughs> if we say native, you know, native American, it's not for native Americans, but um, Talking about specifically where I was going to school in Texas, there was quite a heavy population. And I see a bunch of indigenous people in this class. I'm from the state of Oklahoma. So we, we get to claim that fun heritage. And I just see everybody disconnecting as he's trying to make it the most clinical, whitewashed. We're not interested in heritage. We're not interested in today we're not talking about politics it's just going to be an a to b to c class this is what america did this is how you know Indians responded and i thought that was absolutely ridiculous and i thought it was a little insensitive so those are just the two off the top of my head that i'm thinking what pretentious twats academics are and i know so many of them and i apologize guys because i'm insulting you to your face but it's nothing i don't tell them to their face uh, <laughs> And I think it's ridiculous. And I think that in the 21st century, it's not how we want people to respond. You know, maybe in higher level forms of history, yes, we need to teach historical methods. Yes, we need to teach how to write cor or correctly, but you don't have to be so off-putting about it. And I feel like so many people at the level and when i say academia guys i'm talking about like college level masters sure. PhD. it's it's so off-putting and it gets so pretentious and it's about who you can oh, who you're speaking to and who's you know d or essing and uh nobody cares at the end of the day like nobody 90 percent of the population doesn't care and it's really funny to me when you ask these people to climb down from their ivory tower and attempt to relate to the people that need to uh learn what you're doing you know um and i feel like it's 
history's gotten kind of cordoned off from the rest of the sector of anything. Whereas in reality, let's say, because I also have a finance degree, let's also say that I'm working at a bank again. And I think banks, when they are sitting down to set their lending policy and whatever their policy and procedures may be, setting their interest rates, they need to sit down and they need to consult an economic historian so they can attempt to understand trends. It's not just an analyst game, it's also an historian's game. So that's just one example that I think that historians exclude themselves from the system when they may be the most vital part of it. But nobody can talk to Poindexter with his freaking, you know, pocket protector talking about historical methods. Nobody cares about that. So that's why we try to make it relatable and try to have fun with it. Get people's passion sparked. Right, exactly. You never know. You may inspire the next historian that breaks the mold after they finish, you know, their thesis and finish their dissertation and walk out in the world and say, hey, I'm here. I'm an historian and I'm for hire. You never know. So the obviously uh, the last couple months are a really good angle that uh, teaching and learning have changed. Everything evolves, but teaching and learning, especially at the collegiate level, but even in high school level, has changed a lot. Um, and this fall, I don't think a lot of college kids know exactly how or when or by what method they are going to learn or go to their classes. So what are your thoughts on the possibility that a lot of these folks may just strictly be learning via this? It might be just an online only experience. Personally, I don't think anything's lost by it. I think a lot of things are gained by it for the simple fact that we're not going to have kids lining up in a lecture hall to see some narcissistic ass get up and put on his, you know, pin mic and be able to talk and, and belittle students to their face. They're actually going to have to engage and it's going to be through a new medium and it's going to be something that's really exciting to me. I think it's really going to open up how we learn, how we teach what methods are available to us. And I think new media is going to kind of break that open. And what I'm hoping is going to happen is it's going to kind of break some of those molds. It's going to break that stuffiness that kind of exists in academia and that unrelatable, untouchable, I can only have office hours. I can only have this. Well, now, you know what? Instead of that guy being unavailable to help you, he's got email 24-7. Sorry. You know, like those days of Indiana Jones avoiding his office hours are done. It's done. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm really excited to see what happens. And I hope that it does change things. Yeah, that actually reminds me. There's a comedian that was on Bob and Tom repeatedly for a number of years i am spacing his name at the moment but he had a whole a whole sketch about that the, the students always take his course because you know he's going to have to leave in the middle of it and go off on some adventure and they're going to get an easy a it's just kind easy of, a that's right so here's here's a question i had um history is often ugly and it is unyielding and does not care for the feelings of those that are, you know, absorbing it. Now, obviously history is written by the victor, 
and that's going to affect things to a certain extent. But still, even, I mean, if you dig at all, even the stuff that's open and laid bare is there to be interpreted through our given lenses. And considering the the scattered perceptions and interpretations and how everybody is in a completely different spot, it feels like now, does that maybe make teaching history more difficult? Oh, that's a really good question. To me, it should not. History is not about how you feel currently. To me, and it's an unpopular opinion right now, history is objective. Um, yes, it's written by the victors, but I would also say that any historian worth their salt can also find a million primary sources in which it's written by the loser. Yeah. And there are a lot. Um, for example, when we cover Genghis Khan, most of my information in that case comes out of the mouth of the loser because you can't use the secret history of the Mongols as a reliable primary source. It's about all we have is just a written documentation. So all sourcing of that has to come through the eyes of the people that have been occupied. And you'd be surprised that a lot of it is actually and ends up being favorable. So I think it's about objectivity. When you look at through that scope is no things happen that we don't like to happen. Um, but I think you do have to be objective when you look at like the other day, y'all, I took so much shit on Instagram and we're not a huge Instagram presence. We're more Twitter people, but, um, I took so much shit from somebody the other day after I posted, it was a, uh, on this day in history, it was the death of Andrew Jackson. Like I, if I could go back in time, I'd rather like cut a little finger off than fucking post that but it is what happened and i posted it and it wasn't from it wasn't a lot of feedback from the people that necessarily would provide positive feedback in terms of what's going on in our world today in the context of andrew jackson a lot of it's trolling a lot of it is, you know, white savior tropes. And I'm just like, get get out of my house. I don't answer your fucking emails. Why am I going to answer your Instagram posts? I'm just going to delete them. But I think it's very interesting. And I think that things should be shown as horrible as they are. But it does no good to attack or come at the person that's objectively sharing that. I'm not saying it's good. I'm not saying it's bad. If anything, we should take it, latch onto it, add it to our current social arguments and be like, oh, really? Boom. Here you go. Let me cite this. Let me cite this. And shit hasn't changed so much. And the problem is when you try to cite things objectively or you try to just tell the story, a lot of times you get pushback. Um, I don't think we should censor ourselves and history is nasty. Oh my God, it's nasty. That's why the name of my podcast is body count. That's all we follow. And trust me, there will be a day when I come at Andrew Jackson hard. That's what we do. Um, so I think it's really, really interesting though, because it's never the people affected by the story you're being objective about. 
you get really positive feedback from that. Thank you for saying that. Thank you for putting that out there. It's always people that have way too much GD time on their hands or are just, you know, hate mongers. That's all you ever get back in podcast feedback. I don't know if you guys get that as well. And that's why I ignore it. Um, but kind of where I think, even if it's ugly, we have to say it exactly as it happened in the simplest freaking terms so that we know, oh my God, we have all been monsters since the dawn of time and it's time to change those things and it's time to approach them in a more progressive style than maybe we did before but we don't know if it's a more progressive style unless we state the way it was approached previously yeah context is key and uh <laughs> without that yeah. that historical information it's it's impossible to know exactly where you are um people love the 20 dollar bill <laughs> <laughs> boy do they and like it. i just assume that as much as they love it they're just masturbation rags at this point <laughs> I, I don't even know anymore like <laughs> i'm so sorry you guys are gonna have to cut me nah, so much you're gonna be fine like i said we tend we tend to let whoever a guest is go the direction they want to go and that's that's the way that it should be um <laughs> I just have to monitor myself and and uh, not pour fuel on the fire. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, no, yeah, you get me wound up, I'll go forever. Um, that's the problem. It's always the problem. Did you find that in your experiences with people who were doing more instruction on what whatever the subject in history was, did you find that a lot of those folks were objective or do you find that they were actually more teaching what they felt was important to them thus projecting it on the class the really good ones are objective i'll tell you that and um it doesn't matter about level or where they were educated it could be a state school it could be one of the most prestigious universities in the world and um, to me that's a model of true historians and true teachers is that they may feel something really, really passionate about it. Um, and they may teach it very objectively, but the reality is it's the responsibility of universities not to allow professors to teach a class about which they are passionate. So let's say whatever their specialization is, Yes, they can teach to that, but it's also the responsibility of the individual to have not specialized in something that they're particularly passionate about because history essentially is supposed to be a lack of passion. You know, you're just sitting there stating the facts as you find them, as you can back them up and drawing conclusions that support those. So I think it's a little bit the responsibility of the individual and a little bit of responsibility of the university to make sure that balances out. But I will say the really good ones are insanely objective, no matter what they feel about it when they teach a class. And uh, I'll say the less professional and the not so well-skilled historians tend to be a little more subjective when they teach their class. And no matter what your politics are, no matter how you feel about something, you should never present information in that way. And that's also something we really, really try to do on our podcast. And I'm not always the best about it, you know, because I'm like six drinks in by the time we finish it. So 
God knows what I say at the end of the podcast. I don't listen to my own stuff. Um, so I think that is an excellent question. It's very much about the individual. And I think it's also a responsibility of universities to make sure that people are, you know, objective versus subjective. And sometimes you see it in state schools. Sometimes you don't. You always kind of tend to see that thing in the better universities or the more prestigious universities, I want to say. But the reality is having guested in several, or, you know, sat in several places, audited, whatever. That's not the case either. Those usually tend to be the most subjective history lectures that you listen to, which I find interesting. So it, it varies from person to person. And I don't think it has anything to do with education. It's more to do with skill. So here, I got a, I got a good one for you. Putting you in a hypothetical situation. Let's say you were teaching a high-level uh, history class. And the subject matter that you are going to need to be covering is going to approach some, some subject matter that could be considered offensive just for bringing it up. But it's crucial in order to get the context of what happened in that period of time. How would you suggest that, say, the, the modern day you, if you were in that position, modern day professor, be able to bring up some of this information so as they can give the information they need to give, but potentially avoid some of the backlash I've seen that's occurred to several professors where uh, some of their students have become just super offended that something was brought up that they didn't like. That's going to happen no matter what. Um, but if it were me, I always, I would say approach it as open and just like how we're talking right now, like, kind of sit down and always want to use the rapping about whatever when I do my own podcast. Um, oh my God, I apologize. I'm so unprofessional. I'm the worst. <laughs> Actually, it's my co-host. Uh, no <laughs> worries. Her own podcast. Um, I would say one, before you approach that, you talk about objectivity and being subjective as well in history and say look i think it's as ugly as you guys think it is but it's the way it happened let's say you're talking about the civil war i say oh you know it is an ugly thing i don't want to talk about it but let's talk about it in every context let's approach it from the political let's approach it from a human rights standpoint let's approach it every way we can possibly attempt to do so and I think you also have to encourage an open dialogue a lot of those students I feel like feel that way because they may get told to put their hand down uh, like sit down shut up I'm I'm the important one I'm going to teach you instead of having an open conversation and an open dialogue and sitting and answering questions using historical data a lot of it is let me get up here at my you know podium my lecture and pin on my deal and see how important I am and tell you what's what instead of having maybe one class where you have this really open dialogue about everything you're going to talk about and then maybe the next class walk your way through a timeline of events in a narrative fashion where everyone understands don't throw this 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 don't throw a reading at somebody tell them they can't talk about it and then come in and seem to jump around in time 
that really puts people off. And I think that is primarily why those people get backlash. And also, you have to approach any subject with some sensitivity. You you can't just go in there. And I realize a lot of these people have talked about this a thousand times and not in the context of our current social environment. But you have to be aware of your surroundings and you have to go in and you have to talk about them, you know, certain subjects maybe a little more softly, you have to do that approach. You can't go in there and do the same lecture that you've done for the last 15 years and hit point A, point B, and point C. No one cares in this environment. Then that's kind of where I think people want to interact with history and people want to have those discussions. So I think it boils down to just how you approach teaching as much as the issues that are going on. I just think they do a bad job of approaching it. And, you know, some of them are just they have horrible views on history it is what it is and they deserve what they get but others i think it's how they approach the material that ends up backfiring but you're always going to make somebody unhappy um you know it's it's kind of if you spend your whole day and one person calls you an asshole they're the asshole but if you spend your whole day and your entire classroom thinks you're an asshole or, you know, you're the asshole. So it kind of depends on how you look at it and how you're approaching it. Yeah. Yeah. Was there a, a subject or a time frame or an idea or something that you would normally be presenting that is kind of, I don't know that you would call it your least favorite, but the one that you tend to avoid if you're, if you are the one instructing a class zero, a subject that you're like, well, this is not my strength, or this is the one that's like, yeah, I don't want to do this one, but I have to. Um, I always say I won't do two things. I will not do the or the Holocaust, and I will not do 9-11. I won't do them. For one thing, um, we love, you know, really dark subject matter. Again, we're literally counting the bodies of history, and we think history should be wrapped in crime scene tape. It's a goddamn mess, but those are the two things that I will not do. Um, but furthermore, I tend to stray away from the Second World War because that tends to really get your neo-Nazis and your right-wingers out as much as your far left and they want to come together and kind of sandwich you in this hate sandwich. And all you're trying to do is is just tell a story. So I really avoid the Second World War. I might do little tidbits here and there, kind of like Share Me was a little tidbit here and there. But um, that's the two things I absolutely will not touch is the Holocaust and 9-11. But if you like last podcast on the left, I think they already did an awesome job and it doesn't need to be done anyway. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, those are those are two rough ones that I absolutely will not do. They've been covered to death. I yeah. mean, God, watch the History Channel for three seconds. Yeah, Ugh. yeah, pretty much all I day. Mean, if every I hear day. Hitler one more time, I'm just going to go drown myself in the bathtub. You know. Now you know something that I can hear uh, over and over again, and that is that you can find the Pudding Guys on multiple social media platforms. You can find us uh, at Real Pudding Guys on Twitter. You can find us at Pudding Guys on Instagram and Facebook. And, of course, you can find us at Pudding Guys on Patreon, where for just $1 a month, you can help support the Pudding Guys as we research more history, as we bring on more guests to talk to, as we buy more equipment to make us sound professional. We always appreciate our patrons. But uh, now back to it. (laughs) 
<laughs> How's that segue? That work for you? It was perfect. It was perfect. Um, <laughs> professional. professional. Speaking of professional, because that's me. Do you guys care if I go and make myself one more drink before we get into it? Go right ahead. Go right ahead. We will go oh ahead and pause God. and splice. All right. So, what is the drink of choice? That's an important question. Yeah, there you go. Oh, I haven't left Russia yet. I'm still doing vodka tonics. Um, you know, I'm ready to light Red Square tonight if we so need to do it. I like to be committed to that. I, that's what uh, 15 episodes of Russian history have made me a freaking vodka fiend. You know, used to, I just used to do this stuff drinking a beer. Uh, maybe, you know, a little brown to wash it down, but now I'm all about that clear. Like I am all about that vodka. The yeah. potato or the green? Potato. Like to go real traditionalist. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. See, I'm more of a, more of a scotch whiskey kind of a guy, but, uh, I, I got to respect well, any of the hard classier. alcohol. <laughs> that that's me all the way classy <laughs> <laughs> me and me above that's yeah. what i'm called yeah. can we listen to body count for that classy lady host <laughs> well you guys seem to have a lot of fun on on the podcast um and you tend to have uh, some recurring people come back who is uh who's who's a couple of your favorite people to have on there other than bethany that just kind of help you know entertain you uh, if nothing else i have a great time when steph andrews comes on um if for no other reason than she herself is a psychiatrist and god knows i'm in need of one so you know before we may talk for two hours just to figure out what the hell's wrong with me in life and then i also really enjoyed having um dr warren doctor on warren's great uh we talked about churchill which um, I was going to have somebody else to talk about some more Churchill things, but I think we better let uh, the current environment calm down before we approach that subject. But we had a great time doing that. So we always have fun. I've got a lot of other people that are, you know, coming up, but a lot of what this podcast was born out of is this is how I talk to people. It's horrible to be my friend, guys. You have no idea. It is horrific. <laughs> Because you pick up the phone and it's like, oh my God, girl, how you been doing? So my kid's doing this, this, and this. And I was like, do you know that the Japanese sent balloon bombs over in the jet stream during the Second World War? Let me tell you about this shit. Like, sit down, shut up, get ready, buckle up. And so that's very much what this podcast was born out of. So I try to incorporate a lot of the people that I talk to on a day-to-day -day basis into doing this with me. And I try to pick something they don't know anything about, or if they're a, you know, a specialist, something they know a great deal about and nothing in between. So it's a lot of fun. I end up diving into parts of history that I have no business diving into. That is not my specialty that I end up going, what? Oh my God. Like in a few weeks, we're going to do the murder of Alfred Lowenstein, which mm. I'm not going to tell you any more about it, but I dare your listeners to uh, look it up. It'll be fun. It's what <laughs> I call the perfect murder, which doesn't seem that historical, but when you consider at the time in 1928, 1929, he was the world's third richest man. 
and kind of some of the stuff he got into before the market crash is really, really interesting. So we're going to cover that and then we're going to actually cover his death, which is going to be fun. So it kind of ranges. Yeah, that that's a, that's an interesting time. That's uh, actually kind of close to when a lot of the early stuff that we, uh, well, maybe maybe I more than we, <laughs> I tend to do more of the databasing stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. The the early days. The of early days. Books. Well, not the early days of comic books so much, but the early days of the intersection between comic books and movies. The, uh, oh, fir- really? the first one that I can find, and more specifically, we kind of go in a larger sense. It's, it's not just comic books, it's comics, because it's all the same thing. It's pictures with words, and then it's right. converted into a movie. Yes. Question. Yes. When do comic books start being comic books and kind of separate from that noir-like writing? Well, that's, do you get what I'm saying? Like yes. it was a noir magazine, magazine kind of feature. Where does that separation occur, and how did it occur? That's I've always that's been really, a really fascinated. that's a very long conversation because it's it's oh, not <laughs> it's not <laughs> it's not cut and dried. <laughs> it it kind of happened over a series, but to kind of truncate it, it, there there were kind of waves of of how comics evolved over time. A lot of the more popular comics in the beginning it was a lot of comedy but there was also a lot of romance comics there were westerns there was horror that was what was popular for a long period of time they had some superhero stuff start to come in but uh war happened and uh tastes shifted again so it kind of went away from the the uh, emerging heroes and then back towards more of the the war stuff. I mean, a lot of people may or may not be familiar with Sergeant Rock, which was one of the big DC uh, properties that had to do with that. But again, everybody really loves the the current Samuel L. Jackson version of uh, of a, a, a prominent Shield member. Well, he he wasn't originally with Shield. He was originally a GI. He was. Uh, if you saw the original cap, not the original, but the Captain America first one in the MCU, where they show you the, the the commandos, the howling commandos. Well, originally it was Nick Fury leading those guys into combat, and that was really popular. It wasn't until after that kind of terminated and mixing in the um, external pressures of trying to tone down violence and sex and things within comic books. That, that kind of shifted it back towards superheroes again. And it's, it's just really complicated because, again, some companies got bought by others, became other companies, there were mergers, and, and that's just... Marvel has DC, DC has Marvel, all yeah. that fun. Yeah, it's, I it's, can't say that I know a lot, but I do know some. Um, but talking about horror, is it Frank Miller who did the Swamp Thing revival in like the late 80s, early 90s? Or who was that? I don't think it was Frank Miller. It was Miller. really awesome. It wasn't Frank Miller. No. It wasn't Gaiman either, was it? No, I don't No, no there was so. an early Swamp Thing or a late kind of Swamp Thing revival that I remember reading those as a child and being like really, really into it. And I, I thought it was, it's actually what got me into horror. <laughs> Not so much comic books, but definitely into horror. Well, the fun thing about it is it's already kind of a, a medium that has a combination of of the the reading and the artwork, and it kind of lends itself to being converted into something that is in a visual medium. But the first 
at least the first one that I found, the first uh, comic strip specifically that was converted into a movie was in 1898. And that was off of a comic strip uh, called Alley Sloper. Um, that comic strip was actually originally created in 1867. Um, and so these were, you know, black and white, no sound, you know, just the earliest versions of movies to be made. That's, that's the comic strips. Now, comic books, it, you didn't get your first comic book movie until much later. Um, it was, it was going to be more into the 30s when that happened. But uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot out there. And th there's a lot of things that, that most people just don't realize are based on these comics. It's influenced our pop culture in ways people just don't, don't know. I mean, uh, did you ever buy a pair of Buster Brown shoes? No, I didn't, but I am aware of the trend. Right. <laughs> but, yeah. like, I think that's massively interesting. And it's also like you were talking about superheroes really start to have their dawn when they're we're getting into the, the world wars and that pre-war that I, I, I'm not a huge Captain America fan, but uh, uh, I find him tedious. But, um, <laughs> you know, that Captain America kind of shit like that is really where you see that jump off in the idea of, of the superhero. And I find it interesting that evolved from there. But not just that, more of a wartime army men like go out it's it's the same that you see in posters and and i find that very interesting that you see in those pro wartime posters is the kind of same thing that gi's are flipping through too so i always right. found that really interesting well and that's and that's kind of why it was well not that specifically but it it kind of this story that gets lost in the numbers and you know the dates and the places the stuff that makes it so dry that people just don't see how cool some of this stuff is underneath. Um, but I mean, you're talking about getting things in perspective. A lot of the stuff has been around a lot longer than most people will really understand or, or be able to, uh, you know, relate to in the same kind of way. Um, if you get a chance, you know, this is for our listeners too. Don't forget to stop by our website because we have two tools on there that if you get into a discussion and you want to prove somebody's wrong or just uh, start an interesting conversation, we have the ultimate comic movie database. Every movie ever based on a comic strip or comic book is in there. Every actor, every director, it is cross-referenceable. And you can even- As an historian, I mean incredibly impressed by it but i'm sorry <laughs> no to you're, interrupt you. no, you're I was just fine. really really impressed by it i was like i mean like but okay, it started it started it. from questions though because you asked like well who's been in the most comic book movies well, i don't know you have ideas but how do you really look at it all the resources that you can find you'd have to dig for a while to be uh, be certain. And even then, are you really certain? Did you miss something? And there's a lot of stuff out there. So you can look at ours at the top 100 actors uh, who have been in the most. And you, you can say, well, I don't, I don't really count silent movies or I don't count comic strips. You can completely fine tune your search the way that you want it to be. Um, and then of course we have our new, uh, pop culture, uh, uh, death count where you can uh, take a look at some movies and television shows and how many people really died in that. <laughs> so I break it down. Which I am a huge appreciator as okay. you know. Yeah. A lot of fun. Like I don't have my microphone on, but let me grab it and pretend if you want to wow your local con gentlemen, 
<laughs> this is how you do it. Yeah. It's already there. You don't have to do the research for yourself. It's right there. That's Grab right. it. You can get it. It's too much fun. So what kind of, were, are, you, are you ever a comic book fan at all? You said you've got some familiarity with it. I do have some familiarity, but uh, a lot of my, I'm just that basic, like, comic book bitch that's into uh graphic novel i'm i'm a very big frank miller fan and i'm also just like anything neil gaiman you know the sandman was like what got me through high school and college because i was all about feelings um hey that was some good stuff i still love it death Um, and the high cost of living is fantastic you know, I read The Killing Joke and I have a deep feelings and I'm super <laughs> nerdy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like it's that one that, that some girl always cites and gentlemen listening will know what I mean. It's the one that girls always cite to be like, I'm such a nerd. No, you're not. You read one comic book by Newell Gaming. You're really not. Um, <laughs> yeah. But like, no, I used to read them when I was a kid, but I never was fanatical or oh, I have to follow the story or I have to follow this. It was just always something, you know, um, we traveled a lot when I was a kid. It was something that I grabbed at the airport or if I was at the store, um, my mother is a librarian, has a master's in library science. So we'd always be at Barnes and Neville, whatever, but I could walk over and I could grab comic books. And so it was never a continuous chain of something, but it doesn't really have to be, does it? And that's no. what's really great about it is because you can pick it up and you can be sucked into one singular adventure and there's not a, you can pick up on context clues really, really quickly. So you don't have to begin at the beginning. No. You don't have to begin with this series and jump into this series and this series. I mean, you know, there are 1500 different of every, every comic book uh, character, but that was the great thing. You could always pick up different parts of different stories and you just get swept up in it and it's about the animation like you said as much as it is about the actual words that are on the page and i think it's fantastic i'm a huge comic book movie lover except for captain america he is a twat and if your listeners agree fight me i will give my twitter whatever yeah fight me Fight me on it. <laughs> I think I've got, I've got some people fighting me about serious shit. So come at me about Captain America. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've got some people with some very strong love for Captain America that I'm sure will be happy to uh happy to fight you on that one. I know Delvin Cox, who we talk to semi regularly, is a huge Captain America fan. He'll be happy to fight you on that one. I understand. I understand the the like and I understand I understand why people love Captain America. Don't get me wrong. I get it. But it's also, as an historian, I can tell you that that Captain America vibe lost us in the late 70s, early 80s, and it kind of swept by and it's kind of gone and it's not a comic book hero for a global age. And when you try to apply it to a global age, it seems kind of silly as we saw in the Avengers movie. And I'm glad that they brought that up actually trying to apply Captain America to a globalist society and what may end up being a universal society to me is very, very interesting because it's a huge hashtag fail. (laughs) Yeah. It's just walking propaganda more than, more than anything and that, I mean, sadly enough, but I mean, you know, 
that's the time that he came from. Like, right. I get why people are really into it, but I also want everybody to understand that that world is dead, that America is dead. And so that personally is why I'm not a Captain America fan. Like Makes that sense. is done, gone, out the window, and it does not work in a globalized world. Well, there's um, maybe a bit of a Tony Stark fan. Uh, if anybody can tell, I've always, I've always read Iron Man and that was the only Marvel movie. And I remember getting really excited about it because I was born in the eighties. Um, I'm in my thirties. And so to me, comic book movies were also always kind of like the Superman movies and that kind of shit always existed. And, then there were some Hulk attempts and some X-Men attempts that were abortions and nobody cared about those. But then that first Iron Man movie and having always been such an Iron Man fan, I was like, this, this is a comic book like movie. And <laughs> finally, yes, here we go. Um, and I hate to be that lame and I hate to be that fan girl, but I thought it was really, really interesting that finally somebody could connect with an audience and connect with the audience that they're trying to connect with enough to put it together and to make it a big blockbuster event and god knows they've made millions out of it um they've capitalized on the idea that nobody under you know like it's it's only a rare group of really dedicated people and then people that are under 14 that go see movies anymore and the fact that they were able to capitalize on that and then still make them good movies as we progressed i thought was really interesting and i thought it was really well done well richard's favorite comic book movie really is still probably blade 2 he talks about it all the time and cannot praise it oh geez another one (laughs) (laughs) uh we have a great disagreement i'm a blade fan i'm sorry blade was awesome now they're blade the first one was great (laughs) i don't know i'll watch the rest of them it's just like I liked Hellboy one, and everybody came at me for Hellboy two, and I'm like, "Come at me, bitch!" Like, but at the time, that was the only like comic book movies. That's the only thing that we had, and so now you can watch those things, and you could recognize, "Oh God, it wasn't great." But the point was, there was such a separation of what a vast majority of America wanted to see as opposed to what was being put out. And they have this huge untapped market so that we like things like Blade 2 and Hellboy 2. And when I watch them, I'm like, fuck it. I still stand by it. I still love it. I don't care because it was the only thing I had to grasp onto at the time of something that existed in this world of sci-fi fantasy outside of like some of the fantasy books you used to love being made into movies, but that was rare. It was rare and it was few and far between. And I think it's really interesting that they tap this huge market and I'll stand by blade two. I'll do it. Let's see. Two to to one, Richard, we got you. Well, um, I mean, I, I he doesn't think so. It. Look at his face. He doesn't think so. He's like, y'all are so fucking lame. I'm over it. <laughs> well, I, I mean, it's it, it's the same thing, you know. Like the Lord of the Rings would be way better if Elijah Wood wouldn't have been it. So, like, I have all these specific 
specific opinions about these it things that people think are so wet-eyed like a lizard and he wants to cry all the time and as somebody that is a huge uh fan of lord of the rings i do actually i was that person when it came out too and so i'm gonna agree with you on that like ugh, really <laughs> really that's like you're gonna spend multi-million like really that's what you're gonna do but i said the same thing about the hobbit i was just like ugh, kill me yeah the hobbit kill well they, they each had they, they could have been better in certain ways but they were uh leaps and strides better than anything that had been done up until that point exactly and they're the only visual representation of I, that i have of these things i love and that's kind of it's the same thing about blade too they're the only visual representations of these things that you love what was that john leguizamo movie it was a superhero movie of somebody i love what's, god now i can't what's well, not spawn was it <laughs> Spawn! He ruined Spawn! What an asshole! <laughs> that was so... I, that's not... I don't think that was his fault. That that dude is a, a genius when it comes to acting. No, he is. He is. Because if he can go from the rubber ducky in the shower, like whatever deal from whatever that movie was, to, to Spawn, to like now being a serious actor, the Spawn that he ruined, that's yeah, that was, right. Yeah, that was not great. His uh, The Violator, the way they portrayed the Violator in that was not fantastic nothing about it was fantastic <laughs> now there are some fun just to kind of give you a couple to see who if is I can that guy him. is it it's something mcfarland yeah uh todd todd mcfarland todd mcfarland that mm -hmm. okay yeah, yeah. He, I'm not as bad at comic books as I seem. Uh, I just can't remember the shit. He was like, part if I of get uh, in it. Yeah. I can remember like he the was, things from my childhood, reading and being in it. I just I haven't talked about it in so long. It's ridiculous. Right. It was him and Jim Lee and uh, Larson and the group of uh, artists that left Marvel and created that their left own. Marvel. Yeah. Now, if you like attitude, though, that that particular part of history, that is, I I will say something that I don't usually say on air. That that was some balls right there. Just they they leave. Oh, no. They leave. I am aware of that small part of comic yeah. book history, actually, because I can remember it. Right. Um, and and I thought it was just huge. It, it took a lot of balls. And then to take all those balls and go out and everybody expects you to be a huge freaking failure to come back and, and to not be a huge freaking failure is saying saying a lot and to come up with kind of the ideas that they did and you know there's some some issues in there and yeah. of that and i'm not going to get into it no. talk about copyright issue and whatever but it doesn't matter they did it they thought like it is amazing and i uh, ugh, and especially a time when there seemed like there's no room and even now there's no room really to break into the comics industry i always tell people that i love that are illustrators or writers like i love you but if you think there's room in the comics industry you better come with that like i just always say mcfarland because i couldn't think of the first name todd mcfarland like yep. sense of okay 
Like, it's better be better be it, amazing. Do it to it, but I really wish they'd do a Spawn movie that was really freaking good because I loved reading those. I loved them. I loved that, and so I was really excited for that movie as a kid, and I was really into that. I think um, they're so I wish working they'd on do something right now. Yeah, yeah, they are. Are they? I think he. Mm-hmm. I think he is working on something right now. Oh, it's it's, it's yeah, early stages. Excited. Yeah, I, but. And he, they've got the money to do it. I just watched, uh, there's a, on ESPN, there's a 30 for 30 about um, the home run chase in 1998. So Mark right. McGuire, Sammy Sosa. And he's one of the guests that talks on there. And he talks about buying Mark McGuire's like 70th home run for $2.6 million. So he oh, was that just all? home run ball. <laughs> I thought I thought you were going to because you cut out there for a minute that uh, he bought Mark McGuire's steroid injection uh, syringe for two. Well, who wouldn't love it? You want to lick it, right? <laughs> you want to get his Hep C. Um, He's more of an Andrew person. That's a winner. That's a winner's Hep C that you're getting. That's right. That's okay. Right. Um, does he have a toy company? Uh, by interest, in in a in a manner of speaking, he he has managed Is that where- to all my Rick and Morty models are coming from or whatever else. To my knowledge. Yes. He is. He is behind. He sculpts a lot of toys. I mean, he's got, he's got so many businesses going on. He has managed to just kind of create an empire. Because I've, I've screamed at my significant other quite a bit about being like, these are Todd McFarlane's toys. There's no way. Yeah. I think there is a way. And I think he has lots and lots and lots of money to do whatever he would like. And I am currently putting together a Rick and Morty like, or a, you know, PC principal's desk that is a Todd McFarlane creation <laughs> in essence. So get out of my face. Yeah. Okay. Like hey, let me have my time. That's definitely I'm worth it. To gather my models and I'm not equipped to deal with you. And I'm pretty sure it's Todd McFarlane. Well, I think you might find it mildly interesting. One of the things you should definitely do at some point here, go into our uh, database. One of the things that you can do is pull up uh, by year every movie that was released based on a comic you just see what was released and you might find a few you were surprised on things like uh 2002 road to perdition people love that movie because it's great based on a comic so i mean it's just a lot a lot of really kind of nice little gems that most people don't uh, don't think about or a history of violence that one was based um, on a comic. i always try to be that pretentious dick at a party that's like <laughs> <clears throat> Well, Did you, know? you might not know this, but <laughs> <laughs> so I'm really excited to like throw out more than I already know that are not like comic books, graphic novels, and a, a lot of things that I like to throw down into that group of hipster twats that I usually end up having dinner with because I mean like I'm the original I deserve to have like Harry Potter glasses and a fucking scarf around my neck all the time I really do I'm that twat that's like well actually it's based on a comic book I was about to go grab my snake wand comics right but it won the academy award (laughs) um yeah no I'm that dick I very much am that dick so I'm really excited listeners Listeners, if you don't just want to be, hold on, if you don't just want to be the winner at your con, you can also be the most pretentious dick at dinner parties. Well, actually. 
My Back favorite Twitter thing to hear in the whole world. Yeah. Well, yeah. actually. So, all right. So we're, we're obviously, we tend to go about an hour. We're wrapping things down a little bit. I don't want to forget this. Um, I want to give you a chance to kind of give a shout out to any upcoming episodes you're really excited about, uh, any social media, any links or anything. Where can we get as much uh, Body Count podcast as, as we can? You can follow Body Count Podcast. And before we talk about follow, you can actually find us at bigheadsmedia.com. That's going to end up being my network. That's who represents us. Um, on Big Heads Media, you can find us on the History tab. You can buy our merchandise. We are bodycounthistorypod.com. You can listen to everything there. Just body count at any of your normal listener platforms. You can find us anywhere, everywhere. We're there. God knows. Um, you can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at bodycountpod. And then you can follow me at Jessica B. Manor on Twitter and Instagram. I like to think, because I don't, I'm an asshole, and I don't run my own social media for my uh, <laughs> podcast. But I like to think that my Twitter is more interesting. The reality is not. But I try to tweet anything and everything from any genre of history I'm particularly looking at that day or anything that anybody's put in front of me. So, you know, you guys start putting comic book history in front of me because I want to very much be a part of that world. That I can do. Even though I'm just the lamest and don't know anything. <laughs> we all don't know anything at first. That's uh, that's what history, uh, history is there for, to be found and dug through and rub it all over and get dirty in it and feel dirty afterwards. Right. Rub it all <laughs> over our faces. You know, just get in it. Like, yep. let it slap us in the face. We have to do what we have to do. That's right. Well, thank you so much for coming on and visiting with us for a little while and uh, making our day just that much better. Well, thank you guys so much for having me. I hope I don't bore your viewers too much. And I promise you guys, if you listen to the podcast, I'm never this put together because I am <laughs> sober for once. So <laughs> you guys enjoy this. I have something intelligent to say. No, we're a lot of fun. But Excellent. thank you guys for having me. I had a really great time. Fantastic.